This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. As we return to our study of the book of Colossians, we're at a point in Paul's letter where he is deep into the process of something that he does in many of his epistles. Uh, He has a way of building one truth on another. He'll often start the epistle by laying some theological ground, and then he'll build on that theological ground and build on it and build on it until the latter half of the book he'll get to some practical outworkings of that truth. But as we come here to chapter 3, he's done much to lay that theological foundation, uh, clarifying some key doctrine by painting a picture of how these truths intersect and interact with each other. Um, It's one of the reasons, honestly, that it's hard to preach a series from one of Paul's letters because it all fits together and you want to you want to take the whole book together and somehow um, show how all of it fits together and of course we can't do that in one sitting and so we have to try to look at one piece at a time but I hope you begin to see how all of those pieces fit together but as we as we get here to the beginning of chapter three he's done a lot to share uh, truth with these believers and specifically in chapter two one of the things he's focused on is some realities about the Christian's life in Christ. Uh, So for example, in verse 10 of chapter 2, he told the Colossians that they are complete in him. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he told them that they are quickened together with him. In verse 19, he shared the fact that Christ is the head. And in verse 20, he talked about the fact that they are dead with Christ. Those are just a few of the examples of things that he shared about how the Christian's life is intertwined with that of Christ. And he's really uh, getting across this message with the entirety of the book of Colossians. If I were going to try to sum up in just a, a few words what the book of Colossians is expressing, it's the fact that it's all about Christ. And so he's been talking about that, he's been sharing that, and he's getting ready as we're coming to this third chapter to begin to talk about some some practical outworkings, what, what that looks like in our lives to live the Christian life. But as he does that, as we come to the beginning of this chapter, he's going to address with these believers uh, their mindset. Now, mindset is important in uh, many different aspects of our lives. In, in basically any field, your mindset is important. Uh, the perspective with which, you, with which you come at a specific situation or a specific task is really going to have an impact on um, potentially your success and failure in that endeavor. And there are lots of examples of this. People in lots of different arenas understand and give attention to their mindset. One, one arena in particular is that of sports. There are lots of sports players who give a lot of attention to their mindset when they come to a competition. Uh, one standout example is Spanish tennis player Rafael Nadal. He is well known for some pretty quirky things that he does when he plays tennis. Um, he's, he has certain things that he does just so before each tennis match. He has uh, specific um, physical movements that he does and ticks before every time he serves uh, the ball. 
and it, it drives some of his opponents crazy. Um, but he's got these specific things that he does. One thing that he's known for is he'll always have a bottle of a recovery drink and a bottle of water with him at every match. And he has them positioned in, in a very specific way next to where he sits. So he actually says that this is what he does. He says, I put the two bottles down at my feet in front of my chair to my left, one neatly behind the other, diagonally aimed at the court. Those are his words. And you might say, why? Just because he wants to be weird? Well, here's what he has to say. He says, it's a way of placing myself in a match, ordering my surroundings to match the order I seek in my head. Now, you might say, that's a bunch of hogwash. It doesn't matter exactly how you place your water bottles, all right? That really doesn't have an impact on how well he's going to play the game. But he is so interested in his mindset when it comes to that tennis match that he's going to even place his water bottles in just such a way to help his mind be where he wants it to be entering that match. Now, is that just pointless eccentricity? Um, he is a successful professional tennis player, um, so I, I can't cast too much judgment, but whether or not those details are essential to his frame of mind, he understands that his mindset in coming to that game is important. And proper mindset might mean the difference between winning and losing. Now we get that in sports, people get that in business and in other ventures, but do we ever think of that in the realm of our Christian life? As believers, our mindset matters. It matters how we look at things, how we think. And as we begin chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul is getting ready, like I said, to dive into some really practical ground. In this chapter, he's going to talk about how Christians ought to speak, how they ought not to speak. He's going to talk about how Christians ought to treat each other. He's going to talk about how relationships between husband and wife and father and children and servant and master ought to look. He's going to get into some really practical and potentially uh, difficult, challenging ground. But Paul understands that as these Colossians start to focus on the practical, it's going to be very important that they're thinking the right way as they come to their Christian duties. It's all too easy to look at passages like the second half of Colossians and see it as this list of duties to perform, as our obligations. And if we check off those obligations, then that's successful Christian living. Paul is trying to help these Colossians understand that it's not just about gravitating to those practical passages in Scripture and saying, okay, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this. He's saying we need to be thinking the right way. As we come to these practical admonitions, you need to give some attention to your mindset. So what is the proper mindset? What is the perspective a Christian ought to have that prepares us to live godly in this world? Well, first, Paul tells the believers in Colossae to seek. Consider with me Colossians 3.1. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So, 
Paul predicates this challenge on the reality that these believers are risen with Christ. This goes back to chapter 2, where Paul told the believers that they were buried with him, buried with Christ in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So these believers, Paul is saying, you are risen with Christ. You have new life in him. And we've talked about that as we've looked at this book. But that is the reality of their standing. They have been raised with Christ, resurrected with Christ, new life in Christ. And he says, if that is true, then that is what I'm basing my challenge to you on. In Galatians 2.20, Paul reflects on this reality and he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is expressing this truth. My life is not my own. It is the life of Christ lived through me. He says, I live, but it's not me. It's not me living anymore. It's Christ living in me. It's my life in Christ. That's the reality of Paul. And Paul is telling the Colossians, that's the reality of your life now. You're risen with Christ. And so stop and consider that for a moment. Your life, as Paul will express later in this chapter, is hid in Christ. You are no doubt familiar with the king's guard until recently known as the Queen's Guard. The name has changed for reasons that you probably understand. They are sentries. Uh, They serve as sentries at Buckingham Palace and St. James Palace in London. And they're an icon of the city, but one of the things for which they're known is their careful discipline. They're not permitted to eat, sleep, smoke, sit, or lie down, during their two-hour tour of duty. They're to stand at attention the whole time, except when they're marching in a carefully prescribed way at certain intervals. Every part of their appearance and their behavior is just so. What would it mean if one of those members of the King's Guard were to decide that he wanted to embrace some form of self-expression? He wanted a way to stick out from the other guards. He wanted to be remembered. He wanted to be noticed. How do you think that might be received? Well, not very well. The individual is not meant to be seen. When you see one of these guards, you don't see the person. You see the uniform. He's hidden behind that position. He's hidden behind the unit. He's hidden behind the uniform. It's not about him. It's about the office he holds and who he represents. Is there not a parallel to us as believers? At salvation, my life is swallowed up. I am gone. I'm now alive only in Christ. 
Everything meaningful about my life is now wrapped up in Christ. It's no longer about self-expression. I'm to be hidden behind Christ. My life guided by the one who I represent. My life is in Christ. And Paul, here, as he's, as he's challenging the believers about this, he causes them to think, well, if, if my life is in Christ, where is Christ? Well, he's at the right hand of God in heaven. And so Paul tells them, because that's true, seek those things which are above. Your life is in Christ, Christ is in heaven, so seek the things that are above. Where your life is, that's what you ought to be seeking, right? Before we dig into that part, talking about the things that are above, I do want to give some attention. When he uses the word seek, what exactly does Paul mean by that? Well, we we understand, of course, that to seek is to search. So you think hide and seek. We understand what that means. You're seeking, that means you're looking. But there's an intensity to this word that Paul uses that we might miss. So in Matthew 2.13, yes, 2.13, sorry, when the angel appears to Joseph and warns Joseph to flee to Egypt, he uses that same word, seek, when he tells Joseph this. He tells Joseph that Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. For that reason, Joseph is to take his family to Egypt because Herod is going to be seeking after baby Jesus so he can kill him. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter uses that same word when he warns his readers that Satan is seeking whom he may devour. In both of these cases, it's not something casual. Um, it's not something that, that doesn't have a lot of attention, a lot of care given to it. There's an intensity here. So when Paul says, seek, this is not a child who can't find their lost math book. This is a child who is looking for the M&M that they just dropped. There's intensity. There's desire. It's not just a casual activity. Paul is saying this is an endeavor. Your mindset ought to be one of intense seeking. But what, again, what are you seeking for? Well, the things that are above. To help us understand what he's talking about here... Um, there's, a, I think it helps to consider a challenge that Christ gave that is, that is similar in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So between the two of these verses, we are to focus on, we are to seek after, to desire first that which is above that which is of the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. And as we think about what this means, what Paul means by seeking the things that are above, it might be helpful to think about it this way. Um, And I don't want this to come across in any way as disrespectful to our great God, and I don't think it needs to. But think with me of, of heaven. God the Father on the throne, Christ at his right hand. Now, of course, we understand There's the mystery of the Trinity where Christ is a a separate person of the Godhead and yet is is still one God. Um, But Paul uses this this language here, talking about God and Christ at the right hand, all right? So let's use that image in our mind 
Understanding, of course, we're not talking about two different gods, but here's God the Father, here's Christ, and they're in heaven. And they're in conversation. What do you think they talk about? Up there in heaven, what matters to them? Forgive me, but do you think they discuss the game? Do you think that they're talking about the newest episode of whatever show? Do you think that they're talking about how such and such a plant is producing this year? Now, none of those conversations are inherently sinful, but Paul is challenging these believers. Put your seeking, put your intense searching, your desire, your endeavor where it really matters. Let your seeking be where your life is, and your life is not here. Your life is up there in Christ. So let the intensity and the focus go on the things that matter up there. What matters to God in heaven? I think that's what Paul is trying to express as he says, seek the things that are above. This is Forrest Fenn. He wrote a book called The Thrill of the Chase. But there's one detail about his book that it's especially well known for. Uh, he included a poem in this book that gave clues to the location of a treasure that Fenn had hidden somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. He hid this treasure, created this poem, and challenged the world. Find my treasure. And he said, whoever finds it gets it. Well, he published the book in 2010, and from the time it was published until the treasure was found in June of 2020, it's estimated that over 300,000 people went searching for that treasure. For some, it was just a fun adventure, but for others, it became an obsession. Uh, there were multiple explorers who were injured while they were searching for the treasure. There were two who even died in their quest for Forrest Fenn's treasure. Now, the treasure was certainly valuable. It was worth about 200, or, I'm sorry, $2 million. But what was it really worth? Was it worth the lives of those two people? Was it worth the obsessive fixation of so many people? That treasure was something that many people truly sought after. There was passion behind their seeking. There was intensity. There was deep desire. They were truly seeking that treasure. What about you? What do you seek after? What do you obsess about? We're all searching. We're all intensely driving after something. It's only human to seek something. I'm convinced there's not a human being on the earth that does not have this intensity about something. But what is it? Is it, as Paul challenges us, the things that are above? As we think about the proper Christian mindset, Paul challenges us to seek the things that are above. And he also challenges us to set our affection. This is verses 2 through 4. Uh, Colossians 3, 2 through 4, 
Paul says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Now, in many ways, this seems to be a direct parallel to the previous verse. He's expressing a lot of the same truths. He's getting to think about these same uh, realities about their life in Christ. But there's a slightly different emphasis, and I want to spend a little bit of time digging into that and considering what he's saying. So what does it mean to set your affection? Uh, This is an interesting word, and it's translated uh, a few different ways in our New Testament. So in Matthew 16, 23, Peter, in that passage, in that chapter, uh, rebukes Christ for talking about going to the cross. And Jesus responds to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now that word, when Jesus says thou savorest not, that word savorest, that's the same as set your affection in Colossians 3.2. So Jesus is saying, basically, Peter, you have not set your affection on the right things. But it's a parallel word. Um, or it's the same word. Uh, uh, Romans 12.3, Paul uses this word as well. He's encouraging the believers not to think of themselves more highly than they ought to think. And when he speaks of the way that they're thinking about themselves. Again, that's the same word for set your affection. They're, they're, the way they're thinking about themselves um, is, again, uh, parallel to this. In Philippians 2, 5, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Again, the same word. So a few different shades of meaning here. But if we take these passages together and try to think about this idea, Paul is expressing uh, something that has to do with focusing your mind. It has to do with directing your attention. But it also has to do with what you value, what you care about. That's why the translators aptly use the word affection. This has to do with the mind, but it also has to do with the heart. Paul is challenging them about the way that they're thinking, where they're placing their attention and their affection. He reiterates this truth, or he reiterates here the truth that ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. So Paul's challenging them now, not just about what they're pursuing, but about what they love, what they value, what they treasure. And of course, those two things go hand in hand. The things that we value, the things that we're setting our affection, our attention, and our care on, those are going to be the things that we seek, right? But as we look at verses 2 through 4, um, there are spe- some specific challenges that Paul gives that are helpful here. He, he challenges them to look upward. As opposed to looking down, looking at the earth, focusing on where they are living out their lives, he challenges them to look up, to look to heaven to look to Christ, who is above. He also challenges them to look forward. So as opposed to looking around at the present, at all that's going on around them, at what they see, to look to the future. Verse four, he tells them, when Christ, 
who is our life shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. He's pointing to the future. He's saying, when Christ comes again, you, those who are Christ's, will be part of that army that follows him. Think ahead to that day as Christ, uh, Christ's second coming, as he's coming to earth and scripture talks about that army following him, Paul is saying, you are gonna be part of that army. That is the reality of the future. Let the future realities shape what you value, where your attention and your affection lies now. Paul is saying, don't get so caught up in what's going on right now that you miss what's going to happen in the future, what Christ is going to do, what his victory is going to look like, what your position with him will be, even if you don't see it now in the earth, in the way that things are on earth, that future is coming. So he challenges them to look upward, to look forward. Another helpful thought here, as we're thinking about setting our affection, is the fact that this phrase could also be expressed, exercise your mind. Um, do you ever do a mental exercise with yourself where you stop and you look up, maybe literally, maybe just figuratively, and you intentionally just set aside the things of earth and give your attention and your thoughts to heaven. What's going on up there? What matters up there right now? What is real up there? Do you ever stop and say, I'm going to forget for a minute about what's going on right now. And I'm turning my thoughts to the future. Not just to your future, but to the confidence you have in what God says is coming. In the reality we know about his, the expression of his victory. Those sorts of exercises can help us to set our affection. To let our attention and our care be on the right things. And those sorts of exercises can give us confidence and peace and perspective and boldness. The Navy SEALs are legendary. And I don't mean to start an argument or contribute to a rivalry, but many people would argue that they're the gold standard in special ops. But one of the things... <laughs> all right, the first amen of the sermon... <laughs> but one of the things about SEALs that is legendary is their training. Uh, SEAL training is, for most of us, unimaginably tough. Fewer than one in ten of the sailors who enter get their trident. Uh, and this training seeks to break down and rebuild these recruits in every way. Uh, the training is designed to shape not just their body, but their mind so that they'll have the right mindset, the right focus, the right response in any situation they might face. So they're building muscle memory to respond quickly to threats, but they're also uh, developing the right thinking processes to know how to prioritize, how to make good split-second decisions. For a SEAL, mindset is really important. 
that they're focused on the right things, that they're thinking the right way about every situation. What is your mindset today? Where's your affection? What do you see as most significant? Is it the stuff that's going on right in front of your face? Or is it the stuff that would get your attention if you were watching from heaven? What appears to you to be the most brilliant, to be the most pressing? This is a challenging question. Where is my affection? So Paul, as he's challenging these believers about their mindset, he's encouraged them to seek and to set their affection on the things that are above. And now he addresses another aspect of their mindset as he challenges them to mortify their members. This is verses five through seven. He says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. I'm not going to take time to focus on the specific things that he lists here. Instead, I want us to consider this concept. Paul has already pointed out the fact in this book that these believers are dead with Christ and alive again to him. All right. So this, this putting to death has already happened, and yet here he's challenging them to mortify that, which seems he's expressed as already dead. There's a paradox here, a paradox that I dare say many of us have experienced. Sin and the Christian. So we are free from sin, but we can still struggle to shake off its shackles. We are dead to sin, and yet we find ourselves wrestling with our sinful flesh. So The spiritual reality is that if you know Christ, you are, in truth, dead to sin. So what is Paul saying here? He's telling them to mortify their members which are upon the earth. Clearly, there's there's some action taking place. There's a challenge here. What does he mean? What is he talking about? Well, this is a unique word um, when he tells them to mortify their members. It's only used two other times in this form in the New Testament. Uh, once in Romans 4, once in Hebrews 11, and in both cases, it's talking about Abraham. Specifically, Abraham's 100-year-old body. It's reflecting in those passages on how we would view a 100-year-old man who says that he's going to father a child. I personally would want to gently take that man aside and tell him how foolish he is. He's going to be unable to father a child at such an advanced age. It's physically impossible. So sure, Abraham himself might still be alive, but in that respect, his body is dead. Abraham, from a human perspective, has no ability to give life. He had no ability to father children. And of course, that's why we know it's so amazing that God allowed Abraham and Sarah at such an advanced age to have a child. But this is the word that is used in those passages to talk about Abraham's inability to give life, inability to father a child. That deadness is the idea that Paul's talking about here. He's calling the Colossians 
to bring deadness to their earthly members. At the end of chapter 2, he talked about the fact that because they're dead with Christ, they are dead to the rules that once bound them. Now he's expressing the fact that because they're dead to Christ, they need to be dead to sin in their lives. And of course, he gives this list of specific things. But he's expressing this idea, this is part of what being in Christ means. In Ephesians 4.22, he puts it this way. He says that ye put off, concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So there he uses language, not of death, but of removing something, taking off one garment in order to put on another. So there are different ways this is expressed in scripture. This idea of, of putting to death the flesh, of taking off that, that sinfulness that seeks to still have a hold on us as believers. I personally find in, in considering this, trying to think about what this means practically for us, uh, that Romans 6 is very helpful. Verses 11 through 12, Paul says there, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I think that this passage helps shine some light on what it means to mortify our members. So there's an aspect here that has to do with our thinking, and there's another aspect that has to do with our action. Um, There in Romans 6, Paul tells the believers to reckon themselves to be dead indeed unto sin. That idea of reckoning is, here's a spiritual reality that is already true. I'm dead to sin. What needs to happen is for me to accept that reality as truth, to believe it, to reckon it to be true, to say, yes, that's what God said. Yes, that's the truth, whether I feel like it or not. So Paul first is challenging them about their thinking. He's saying, you are dead to sin. You need to let that truth shape your thinking. You need to receive it. You need to allow it to transform the way that you think about sin and about self. This is true, and the way that you think about it is very important. You need to think right when it comes to sin. We can often give in to wrong thinking. We can adopt the idea that sin does have power over us, and we cannot break that power, that we're just stuck Man, I just can't break this habit. Too bad. And we can adopt this idea that we, we are defeated, that we are not dead to sin, that we are not free from sin. Paul is saying, you need to reckon. You need to think right. You need to recognize this is the truth. Receive that truth. Believe it. But there's also a practical challenge here too. And I'm not going to dive into this too much because we'll get into that more as we're looking at Colossians 3, but... Um, in, in later messages. But he, he tells them not to let sin reign and not to yield to sin. So when it comes to mortifying our members, when it comes to mortifying sin in our lives, it's not just about thinking the right way. There's an action component to this too. 
you recognize that you're dead to sin, but you also need to cut off every lifeline that sin could have in your life. You need to take away its life. I think that's what Paul is expressing here with mortify. He says, you need to stop feeding it. You need to cut off every way for sin to be fed in your life. Um, He's saying, take it off the throne. Don't give up anything to sin. Several years back, my wife and I were still renting, and on waking up one morning, I hear a strange sound coming from downstairs. And so I groggily get up, I open the door, um, and start to head down the stairs, and realize it sounds like rushing water. Suddenly, I was very awake, and I rushed down the stairs, and there was probably an inch or more of water on the floor um, on the entire downstairs of our house. Tile in the hallway, into the kitchen, into the carpet in the living room. And I run around to the laundry room and find a pipe that's attached to the hot water heater. Correction, it used to be attached to the hot water heater. (laughs) And it's just come completely separated from where it was supposed to be. And there is water And I'm not exaggerating here. It is gushing out of that pipe. Um, There were a lot of thoughts that went through my head in very quick succession. And as strange as I am, one of the thoughts that went through my head was, I can reckon the fact that I am a renter. (laughs) When something like that happens, that's a nice thing to be able to reckon. Because guess whose responsibility it is? It's not mine. It's the landlord. I was able to reckon the fact that whatever needed to happen with that carpet, um, he was going to have to take care of that. Whatever needed to happen to fix that pipe, he was going to have to take care of that. It was off my shoulders. It was not something that was a responsibility for me. And those were sweet thoughts to be able to reckon as true in that moment. But there was another part of what needed to happen in that moment. And my landlord, being a wise man, had given me one of those water shutoff keys. And so I quickly ran to the closet, grabbed that thing, went out to the street, and shut off the water. Because of all the things I needed to do in that moment, I could have called the landlord and said, this is going on, it needs to get fixed. I could have started mopping or squeegeeing it out. I could have run upstairs to tell my wife, I could have just stood there in disbelief. There were a lot of things that could have gone on, a lot of things I could have done, even to start to try to get rid of the problem and clean up. But what needed to happen first? I needed to shut the water off because no matter what I did to try to fix the problem, if the water was still gushing out of that pipe, um, then I wasn't going to be able to really get to the heart of what needed to be done. Often in our Christian lives, I think that we can work on mopping up the mess. We can work on trying to do something to clean up, but we never go and shut the water off. We keep letting that sin into our lives. We keep giving opportunity. We keep letting sin reign. We keep yielding our members. And we keep saying, why is there such a big mess for me to clean up? I'm working at this so hard. But we're opening the door wide for sin to get in. 
And Paul is saying, you need to mortify your members. You need to cut it off. You need to shut off the opportunity for sin to enter your life. Then, by God's grace, progress can be made. The mess can be cleaned up, but you've got to shut off the water first. The reality is we all feed certain things in our lives, and we all starve other things in our lives. And so the challenge for all of us to think about is what am I feeding, and what am I starving to death? Am I feeding the things that are above and starving sin? Or is it the other way around? In this book of Colossians, we're going to talk, as I mentioned, about some really practical admonitions. And I trust that it's going to be very helpful. But we aren't going to be able to properly act on any of that if we're not firmly grounded on the doctrinal truths of the first two chapters and if our thinking is not informed by what we've considered tonight. We can only properly live the Christian life if we have the right mindset. We need to seek the eternal, to have our minds and our affections set on Christ, and to put to death the sinful passions that so easily rule us. Let me read to you the the verses we've considered tonight uh, straight through. Colossians 3 Verses 1 through 7. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So what is your mindset tonight? What are you seeking? What are you pursuing with all your heart? Where is your affection? How are you exercising your mind? Are you mortifying your sinful members? Are you putting to death those things in your life that are contrary to Christ and what he values? When we bought a house a couple of years ago, one of the things my family inherited from the previous owners was a peach tree. And after a couple of years of doing nothing with it and just seeing what might happen and getting no edible fruit from it, I decided this year I'm going to try to give some attention to that peach tree and hopefully actually get some some good fruit off of it this year. So I started Googling to find out what you've got to do to take care of a peach tree, what you've got to do to get good fruit from it. And uh, learned some things about trying to keep pests away and um, trying to encourage the right kind of growth. But one of the things that I came across, and I worked on this some yesterday, was you've got to thin the fruit. So you see in that picture how the fruit naturally grows on the branch. And I don't know about you, but that looks promising to me. I mean, I would love for that tiny little branch to have that many big ripe peaches on it. That would be amazing. But the issue is that if you leave all of those little peachlets on there, 
None of them are ever going, that's not a scientific term, by the way. (laughs) None of them are ever going to grow to full maturity. They're going to stay small, and they're probably not going to be very good to eat. You've got to thin the fruit. You've got to have, um, so I've been told, six inches or more between each fruit if you really want them to be able to grow uh, to the, the size and maturity you'd like. Uh, to get some good fruit when you harvest. And you know, that made me think about our lives. Often with our mindset, I don't think it's so much the fact that we don't know the truth, that we don't recognize even those realities we've considered tonight. But I think often there is so much we're giving our attention and our care to that none of it, none of that truth can really grow to maturity. The fruit in our lives can never be what it ought to be because we're not thinning the fruit. We're not plucking off some of those other things that are unnecessary, that are drawing off our attention and our life from the things that are above. Our minds are so full They're so occupied. And often we can get off base just because we're not intentionally stopping and setting all of that aside and adopting once again that right mindset, seeking the things that are above, setting our affection on the things that are above. That means, of course, intentional time with the Lord but I've been challenged in thinking about this that might also mean um, plucking some of that fruit away that's that's not helping us that's not contributing that is drawing off uh, those things that we could instead be giving to what really matters if our lives are shaped by the realities that we've considered tonight about eternity about Christ and about a relationship with him, then the right mindset will come naturally to us. But we can all use a reality check. We can all allow our thinking to be far too influenced by the things that are here and now, and that please our flesh, instead of allowing our mindset to be shaped by those things that are above. May God help us all to look up, and to look ahead, and above all, to look to Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.